Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, everyone. Before we begin today, uh, three things. First, this show is marked clean, but the period we're going to be discussing today has often been described as the pornocracy of the papacy. And so, if you are listening with children, you may want to listen to this episode first to make sure that everything's hunky-dory. I do not go into explicit detail, I just feel the need to say this ahead of time. Second, I think I am up to date with thanking my patrons and donators, but this holiday season has been very confusing. If I have not given you a snarky regnal name and announcement on the show, please do get in touch with me. As usual, you can do this either through the Facebook page or at Westphalia at gmail.com. The third thing is that this show is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, and every month we try and highlight a show from our membership that is deserving of your attention, because as they are members of the network, they are deserving of your attention. This month we are highlighting the Reconsider Podcast by Xander and Eric. I have not actually managed to listen to the show yet, so I have to apologize for that. I've been meaning to so hard, but there were some technical issues and then... You know, the holidays happened. However, I have guest hosted a couple crossover episodes and things with Xander and Eric. They're both very interesting guys, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to listening to the show. So let's all take this opportunity to go to iTunes, uh, Pocket Casts, your podcatcher of choice, and go check out the Reconsider podcast. It is a show that deals with political science and current events. So I, I think it's an interesting topic and certainly relevant to the interests of people who are listening to the show, I suspect. Anyway, let's get on with it. Popes Sergius III and John Twelfth are generally identified as the first and last representatives of the pornocracy. During the 60-year period that they bracketed, the popes are said to have fathered other popes, in at least one case by a 15-year-old girl, and to have attained the Roman pontificate because of their sexual appeal to influential matrons, or even to the whole population of Roman women. But within the pornocratic period, behavior was not uniformly scandalous. Alberic's rule at Rome marked a hiatus in the pornocracy, as he patronized ecclesiastical reform. By contrast, both Lutprand and the chronicler Benedict of St. Andrea mentioned the years when a woman, Marosia, headed the house of Theophylact as particularly debauched. Quote from Medieval Italy, an encyclopedia, by Christopher Kleinheinz, as read by right, Daniel Doty. No one is sorry, that's the start and the end of the story, from the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the wars of the Reformation. This is episode 27, Powerful Women. Last time, we discussed the reign of Emperor Berengar I, the various positives and negatives of his land distribution policies, the way the bishops would ultimately turn on him, and his complete inability to achieve a battlefield victory. Between the pressure created by the Magyars, raids by Saracen pirates, and the centrifugal forces put in place by his own policies, Berengar ultimately watched his little northern Italian empire crumble in the face of a rebellion, led by Rudolf II of Burgundy. Rudolf was in turn ousted by a conspiracy between Adelbert the Rich of Tuscany and Hugh of Provence. Today we're going to cover the reign of Emperor Hugh of Italy, and touch on the reign of King Berengar II, a man singled out for a particular hatred by Liutprand of Cremona. 
But as I said at the end of last week's episode, we've reached the point where the wheels have fully come off the cart of the Italian political system. Focusing in on these two men is no longer really a useful depiction of events, as central power wanes and other power centers have begun to vie for power and resources. The central government is not yet dead, but as it gasps for breath, the actions of others in the room become more important. And so we will need to backtrack a bit today, before we can continue the narrative, because today the real focus is actually going to be on two women, Marozia Theophylact and her mother Theodora. Telling the story of these two remarkable individuals is going to require us to deal with a gorilla the that happens to be inhabiting the room of this podcast. So far in the show, I have more or less managed to avoid talking about women. I could spend the next few minutes in sackcloths, lamenting my failings, or blaming the sources. But really, I doubt I will get any brownie points for traveling down either of those well-trodden paths. Suffice it to say that I have done my best, and now is the time to address the portrayal of women in history. Now, there's no way I will have time to do it proper justice in this short section, so it will be a topic we revisit. But given today's subject matter, this has become a key need-to-know bit of context for you, my loyal listeners. So here we go. The portrayal of women in history. First off, it should not be surprising that powerful women in the early Middle Ages are not viewed favorably by the primary sources available. These sources are notoriously written by church clerics, and most specifically by members of early monastic orders. Though the attitude of the classical and medieval church towards women is one of far more complexity than most commentators allow, we can say with certainty that, at least among the history-writing class, the role of women was conceptually very limited, and deviations from that role were not savored. How widespread this attitude was even amongst the clerics, let alone in society beyond the church, is an important question but one that, alas, we'll have to wait for a later episode. Suffice it to say that while Liutprand of Cremona and his ilk penned erotic fever dreams defaming the character of almost all the women they came across, the more mundane records show numerous women in powerful religious and political posts across Europe, even in positions of authority over men. This hypocrisy is as much an inheritance of the misogynistic classical world as it is of early Christianity, but that right there is a rabbit hole we do not have time for. Rodenborough's aside, it was the strict views of the religious literati that were passed on, and so the historical record portrays Theodora Theophylact as, quote, a shameless whore who exercised power on the Roman citizenry like a man. Thanks for that, Leotprand. I don't know which is worse, someone being a whore or being a man. Anyway, as history became a systematic practice, such betrayals have created problems. Initially, historians from Gibbon onward tended to follow the line drawn by the original sources. Beyond the paucity of alternatives, Victorian men were not known for their sexual enlightenment, and so these women were again portrayed as horrible monsters with voracious appetites of all kinds. But as the practice of documentary criticism came into the historical mainstream, it became less and less possible to take these sources at face value. Beyond the obvious biases on an individual level, the sources present an odd consistency in their narratives describing all powerful women. Surely, not all powerful women were simultaneously sexually immoral and brutal tyrants, but this is the situation portrayed by the churchly sources. A similar thing can be seen in depictions of other people the church hardliners didn't like. For example, depictions of heretics. In this and later periods, church sources focus on the sexual immorality inherent in all those who deviate from religious orthodoxy. This is often the case even in situations where we know the theologies in question to be extremely ascetic. Despite the clear logical problems, in such situations historians find it hard to issue blanket denials when a source is the only extant document. After all, some of these powerful women may have been sexual libertines, but at the very least it's clear that much of the narrative is making use of a literary trope and is not a faithful depiction of reality. This conclusion was aided by the increasing discomfort in polite society with the often erotic nature of the condemnations of these women. So, by the early 20th century, depictions of these powerful women as scandalous monsters were widely discredited. But this new view did not necessarily translate to a more sympathetic portrayal of women, or even really replace the old one entirely. For the most part, historians of this new, modern, structuralist school used data to try and understand broad historical themes, and tended not to make time in their work for looking at any kind of individual who might have deviated from the average portrayed in the data, notably women. If they bothered to notice women at all, it would be to lament the lack of material. 
The result was that women became even less visible in the narratives, subsumed by a supposed lack of evidence and an institutional inertia. While the lack of evidence was not entirely invented, it quickly became a way for the male-dominated historical discipline to avoid scary things like women or, God forbid, emotions. This blind spot was one of the key factors that eventually led to the downfall of the structuralist school in the United States, although it is still viable in other countries with inclusions from some of the post-structuralist schools. Starting in the 1960s and becoming unstoppable by the 80s, the post-structuralist methods of historical inquiry were actually spearheaded by feminists, using literary criticism techniques on historical documents. This had upsides and downsides. As many of these researchers were not trained historians, they had the benefit of being able to bypass the inbuilt biases of the discipline. But this also meant that they lacked training in several centuries' worth of key methodological skills. This left some of these works open to accusations of being driven by rhetoric and ideology rather than by evidence, and in some cases these critiques had merit. But, as is so often the case, having new voices enter the scene ultimately only served to make the discourse richer. Now that many feminist historians, of all genders, have been able to pursue their own lines of inquiry within the mainstream of the historical discipline, most feminist historical writing is not just academically valid, it's fascinating and downright vital to the further pursuit of historical knowledge. Now, personally, I consider myself to be a feminist, but I do not consider myself to be a feminist historian. There are male feminist historians out there. I am not one of them. Assuming that I can call myself a historian at all, I would have to hang my hat on the historical sociology hat rack. I prefer methods of inquiry that try to reduce bias and do not blatantly pursue an ideology or single course of study. But that said, historical research is not a science. Bias is inevitable. And sometimes the drive of ideology in historical inquiry can be as useful as detachment from it. Despite not being one, I will assert that feminist, Marxist, and other ideologically driven historians have produced fascinating and insightful works of history that challenge the researcher and force you to consider things in new ways and stretch your boundaries and ultimately contain some valuable insights. Their wider, structural view of history may not be something I completely buy into, but they have a role. So long as evidentiary standards are met, I see no need to condemn any modern school of historical thought, and I relish the task of synthesizing their perspectives into my crummy little amateur history show. All this brings us back to the way I'm going to discuss figures like Marozia Theophylact, notorious for the creative sexual adventures ascribed to her by heavily psychologically repressed commentators of her time, notably Leopold of Cremona. On the one hand, my instinct is to discard all of the purported sexual deviancy as just so much character assassination. Stick to the less scandalous details and go from there. This was the track followed by the better structuralist historians, when they deigned to create narrative histories at all. On the other hand, some modern feminist commentators point out that many of the exploits described, such as having sexual relationships outside of marriage, would not be seen as particularly problematic in a modern context. Maybe not great, depending on your point of view, but also not like the worst thing ever kind of thing. Simply discarding such elements of the story outright as preposterous would be to potentially buy in to the very idea of these acts as shameful, while imposing potentially anachronistic concepts of sexual morality on a period from before many modern ideas of such things became formalized. After all, as I've referenced, it's not entirely clear that the puritanical ideals expressed by the chroniclers was any more indicative of the actual morality of the time than, say, the frenzied tappings of a Twitter troll are of modern values. And of course, there are few sources to corroborate these stories against. It's difficult to tease out the real sexual and social mores of early medieval Italy, and I just don't really have time to discuss at length every such decision I'm going to need to make. So I'm going to be making liberal use of podcast footnotes in this episode to try to briefly explain my reasoning, and at least then you know where such decisions have been made, and some understanding of why I made them. Sound good? Okay, on to the narrative. And I should say that a good number of sexual exploits were cut for time and relevance reasons, rather than any reflection on whether or not I thought they happened. The woman known to history as Senatrix Marozia Theophylact was born to Count Theophylact and his wife Theodora around the year 890. The names of these individuals show the lingering influence of the Byzantine world on Rome, both because of the continued identification of the Eastern Empire with quote-unquote authentic Roman civilization, and due to the continued presence of many Greek monasteries in the city of Rome at this time. Podcast footnote. 
Women from the Eastern Empire were somewhat notorious in this period for their social and sometimes sexual freedom. This is generally portrayed as a bad thing by hostile outsiders, which once again makes it difficult to determine how seriously to take these assertions. But it is interesting that European as well as Islamic sources make these claims. Needless to say, it is tempting to assert that we can see this influence in the strong and somewhat libertine Italian women portrayed in this period, and equally needless to say that there is not enough evidence to really support or deny the assertion convincingly either way. End podcast footnote. Despite outside influences, the key events of the life of Marozia were intensely local. Her father was probably a retainer of Louis the Blind, and was installed on papal land during that unfortunate emperor's brief visit to the city. Louis had given Theophylact enough land, men, and political power to represent the Provencal regime in the politics of the Papal States, politics which had been in more or less total chaos since the death of Formosus. In all likelihood, Theophylact's position built on precedents established under Louis II, and reinforced continually by each king and emperor since. Namely, Louis II established an office in Rome appointed by the emperor that helped quote-unquote oversee papal elections. With the creeping cultural influence of Spoleto under the Gadeshi and the collapse of the political unity of the papacy itself, Theophylact took his position a step further, coming to completely dominate the papal states as if they were a personal possession. This process was of course aided by the continued dissolution of central government in northern Italy. In other words, anyone who might have removed Theophylact from his office was busy with other things. With the newfound dominion of Rome by Theophylact, one might have expected some pushback from the Romans, but on the contrary, having a secular leader with the power and interest in actually ruling Rome turned out to be very much to the advantage of the city after years of faction fighting and chaos. It might have been a problem if Louis had not been blinded and so had used his man on the ground to exert control, but as it was, Theophylact found himself very quickly a retainer without a retainee, and began to go his own way politically. Ultimately, he was able to base his power on the support of the Roman landed aristocracy, the spiritual if not the literal successors of the senators, whom he led into completely dominating the papal states and effectively ruling them even after the defeat of his master, Louis the Blind, by Berengar. Podcast Footnote Amongst historians who have turned their back on the crude term pornocracy for this period, the term saculum obscurum is preferred. This means, essentially in Latin, the Papal Dark Ages, and refers more specifically to a period when the aristocracy controlled things rather than the papacy. I don't particularly care for the term Dark Ages, so I'm kind of in a bind. In any event, if you prefer the term Seculum Obscurum, it would be proper to start it with the beginning of the rule of Theophylact. If you prefer the term Pornocracy, you might tend to prefer a Pope as a starting point. End podcast footnote. To align himself with the aristocracy of Rome, Theophylact took a few concrete steps. First, he aligned himself very strongly with Alberic of Spoleto, the man who had murdered Guy IV. Given what we know about the relationship between Rome and Spoleto, we should not be surprised that keeping Spoleto sweet gave Theophylact military and political cover to consolidate his rule. Keeping Spoleto sweet involved a number of things, though one of the key concerns for us is that Theophylact married his daughter, Marozia, to Alberic. The two had two or three children, but more about them in a few minutes. The important thing is that the Spoletan and Roman aristocracy seem to have been very politically and culturally intertwined by this point, and so this alliance suited both men quite well. One might wonder why the Spoletans did not conquer Rome outright given their dominating position, but it seems likely that the legal problems that would have stemmed from this move would not have been worth the benefits of annexation. Even with the central government being weak, the ramifications of violating laws established by Charlemagne himself in order to abuse the church would probably have been immediate and enormous. Better to get the benefits of rule through a friendly proxy, as the Gadeshi had been doing for a generation now. Podcast footnote. The recent combination blizzard and earthquake in the Mark region of Italy deserves some comment here. As people who remember the walking tour episode on Italy will recall, the modern region of the Mark shares a lot of territory with the historic region of Spoleto. I would just like to give a shout out to any of my Italian listeners who happen to be from Spoleto or happen to have been affected by the earthquake. I really hope everyone's okay, and uh, it's really not clear right now how bad it actually is, but if anyone out there has power and has a computer uh, or is listening to this later, hopefully this, uh, this episode will raise some spirits. 
We're thinking of you out here. End podcast footnote. Beyond his alliance with Spoleto, Theophylact had to sell his rule to the Romans themselves. His first chance to shine came with the creation of an antipope, Pope Christopher. The exact events are unclear. Some sources say that Christopher was legitimate, but that there were some electoral irregularities. Others say that Christopher was elected at the same time as his predecessor, Leo V. Often in history, as we will see, this kind of situation led to decades of wrangling and hand-wringing, but not this time. Our best interpretation of the sources is that Theophylact threw one or both popes in prison and killed them. Then, with the support of Alberic, he picked a new pope, Sergius III. Problem solved, order restored. Sergius himself had been an anti-pope during the rule of Pope John IX, and had been excommunicated and exiled. But with Theophylact's aristocratic mob mobilized and Alberic's morally ambiguous Spoletan troops hanging around, no one really questioned the selection of a convicted heretic. The elevation of Sergius did two things. First, it made it pretty clear that Theophylact was not going to take any sauce. He may have been in Rome, the capital of Italy, but there would be no sauce for Theophylact. Second, the Pope, the only person who could really politically challenge Theophylact from within Rome, was now an excommunicated heretic completely dependent on Theophylact's mob for his quote-unquote rule. That's all pretty good for Theophylact. Podcast footnote. Liutprand of Cremona contends that Sergius was picked because he was having an affair with Theophylact's 15-year-old daughter, Marosia, a liaison that resulted in the birth of future pope, John XI. I'm not a fan of this story. Not that Marosia wouldn't engage in consensual sexual relations with a priest. As we will see, she was totally down with open interpretations of sexuality. But there are some problems with this story. First, we have three sources for this period. One is Liutprand, who we should assume is full of it in most situations. The second agrees with Liutprand, but also might have gotten the story from Liutprand, we can't be sure. And the third source says that John XI was born as a result of Marozia's marriage to Albrecht. And the dating for that birth seems pretty reasonable, although we're not entirely sure. And, of course, early medieval dating makes quantum physics look like Newtonian physics, but I digress. The second issue is that there are plenty of reasons that Theophylact would have picked Sergius as Pope, as I have already outlined. Finally, the guy who is currently having an illicit affair with my daughter, who can never marry her, would not be my top pick for a job. Admittedly, that point is maybe a bit weak, and depends a bit too much on our own assumptions about sexual morality. But seriously. I've seen historians bend over backwards to argue that against this third point, and maybe they're right, but the first two points are pretty compelling arguments against this particular bit of Liutprand. End podcast footnote. Theophylact would go on to ahem encourage the election of a succession of decrepit old men after Sergius, whose short reigns would never have been long enough to threaten the real power behind the throne. By 914, Theophylact was secure enough to put John X on the throne, a man who was young enough to last for a good number of years, but who not only saw eye to eye with Theophylact on policy, but was also remarkably competent. The election of Pope John X marked the high point in Theophylact's rule. John gave Theophylact a political partner to complement the strong domestic and political partnership Theophylact enjoyed with Theodora, his wife. This triumvirate clearly aimed at stabilizing the Roman patrimony and enacted policy accordingly. In terms of foreign policy and security, Theophylact maintained his Spoletan alliance. Further afield, Theophylact transferred his nominal loyalty to whomever happened to be ruling northern Italy without getting too directly involved in the ongoing civil wars. That said, Theophylact and John actually worked to strengthen imperial control in Italy by undertaking projects to create cultural and political unity within the peninsula. It's notable that John X felt that this was a desirable thing for the papacy, and he turned his considerable diplomatic talents to this end. His most notable achievement was the effort to drive out the Saracens at the Battle of Grigliano that we discussed last time out. This battle notably made use of the small but competent military forces that Theophylact had been building up along something like a Frankish military model, and was supposedly led by the Pope himself. Last episode I was willing to credit the Pope's leadership over Berengar the Schlemiel, but it's just as likely that Theophylact was passing the Pope notes when it came to military matters. This bit will probably always be obscure, but I think we can all agree that whomever was running the show, it wasn't Berengar. Theodora seems to have played a vital role in the events of her husband's rule. 
In many of the existing non-narrative documentary records, we see her spearheading a domestic policy that dovetailed nicely with Theophylact's security policy. Namely, she strongly patronized the church and the monastic communities, contrary to accusations leveled by Liutprand by the by. This might not seem practical or of any political use, but as I have mentioned previously, the church was the main provider of social services at this time and helped arbitrate law and order. Monasteries served a similar function in the countryside, helping to organize local agriculture, disseminate best practices, and to arbitrate many legal disputes. All of this would have been for nothing without security, of course, but Theophylact was able to organize the local aristocracy into a somewhat coherent military and security force when it wasn't acting as a mob. Theophylact's role was eventually codified when the Pope encouraged the citizens to elect Theophylact as consul, a long-defunct title, but one which undoubtedly sat well with the Roman public opinion. Theodora's role was shortly thereafter also recognized, and she was given the completely made-up title of Senatrix. Podcast footnote. Part of the ongoing feminist debate about Theodora is how big a role she actually played in her husband's rule. Many historians think that Liutprand played it up in order to slander Theophylact. This is not an idea without merit, given Theophylact's promotion of the aristocracy over the legitimate power of the church. But we do have actual records of Theodora co-signing donations and legislation with her husband, and even conducting state business on her own. Given the title, which is pretty well attested, the evidence I discussed in an earlier episode about the importance of female family members in the reign of Berengar I, I feel fairly safe in giving credit to Theodora. End podcast footnote. But all was not well with this cozy scene. For some reason, Marozia did not like Pope John X. Liutprand, of course, asserts that this was because of the affair that John was having with Marozia's mother, Theodora. Maybe. Also, Liutprand could have just made that up. John had been an ally and agent of Theophylact and Sergius for many years before his ascension to the seat of Peter. The beef between Marozia and John might simply stem from more mundane political issues. See, after Theophylact died in 924, Marozia and Albrecht continued to represent the Theophylact clan in the Dominion of Rome. In doing so, they represented the interests of the secular landowners in the city against the rule of the church. John X, as a competent and energetic pope, can not have missed that he was supposed to be the one in charge of the Roman bureaucracy, but he was not. So, some sexual adventures might have been going on, and Marozia might have objected. But given that Theodora died in 917, that is to say, seven years before the mutual dislike between Marozia and John X came out into the open, we should say at the very least that there had to be something else going on other than problems with your mom's boyfriend. Whatever the case, a power struggle ensued and John managed to raise a mob against Alberic and Marozia. The two fled the city, and Alberic was ultimately assassinated. Alberic had a rap sheet a mile long, and so there's much discussion as to whether he was assassinated over the situation in Rome, or for his use of Magyar mercenaries to maintain his hold on the Gadeshi homeland. At any rate, Marozia was on the back foot, and had lost control of Rome. This was reinforced when John installed his brother Stephen as the new Duke of Spoleto. So Marozia did what women did in those days in order to wield power. She got married, this time to Duke Guy the Philosopher of Tuscany. I mentioned Guy last time out. He was the son of Duke Adelbert the Rich. Duke Guy was, as I just said, known as the Philosopher, and seems to have been well regarded at the time, at least among non-clerical circles. Liutprand says that he loved his beautiful wife almost as much as he loved power. Together, the scheming couple expelled Stephen from Spoleto and installed Marozia's son, Albrecht II. Stephen tried to fight back, at which point the forces of Tuscany flat-out invaded Rome, threw the brothers in prison, and had them killed, one way or the other. Scandalous tone aside, this does seem to have been what happened. Just, you know, by me, that seems to sort of have been the breaks of Italian politics at this time. That seems to be more broadly the theme for Marozia's rule, uh, over Rome. She's accused by many commentators at the time of untold corruption and debauchery. The debauchery, as we've discussed, may have been entirely invented from whole cloth, maybe it wasn't, but as far as the corruption goes, that seems to have been the norm for this period, it being the Middle Ages, when people ruled by getting their cronies together and stabbing people who got in their way. People in the Middle Ages were often accused of corruption, because they had done things 
that your side had done the week before, but you didn't like them now, and now you needed some propaganda to throw at them. In this case, the commentator, being Leutprand, was greatly offended at the affront to the church, and so out came the corruption charges. Marozia now resumed her mother and father's role as rulers of Rome, and took up her mother's title of senatrix. The following two popes were decrepit old men in Marozia's pocket, and the third, John IX, was her son, the one about whose paternity so much ink has been spilled, and who I think was the son of Albrecht I, and who actually would have been the eldest son? Which some people have a problem with, I, I mean... During Marozia's reign, and despite all the corruption charges, the Theophylact family continued to sponsor monasteries, build up the papal state, as it were, and secure the foundations of future power, both, both secular and religious, for Rome. Notably, the Cluniac monasteries, famous for their reforming zeal, were first given their official nod by Rome during this time. This brings us about up to date with our main narrative. In 929, Guy the Philosopher died, and here things get very interesting because Marozia, once again, made a cunning new marriage to secure her hold on power. Namely, she married Emperor Hugh of Italy. So, what's up with Hugh of Italy? When last we spoke about Hugh, he had beaten Rudolf II of Burgundy. In the process, Hugh had assumed the title of Emperor, which he had inherited from Louis the Blind. Let's just watch this space, shall we? One of the interesting things about Hugh's victory is that both these men held transalpine possessions. Rudolf, of course, held the kingdom of Burgundy, to the northwest of the Alps. Hugh was the king of Provence, located due west of the Alps. And actually, these men were enemies since well before the fall of Berengar. The actual family relationships and the sources of conflict are really confusing, but it seems that Hugh had married Rudolf's sister and tried to squeeze out Rudolf, even though, also, I guess he was somehow Louis the Blind's son-in-law at some point. Anyway, he failed to squeeze out Rudolf, but it should be understood that when Rudolf was driven out of Italy, he didn't just vanish off the board. He went to his kingdom in Burgundy and began rebuilding his forces to attack Hugh in Provence, a much easier border than the Alps. But Hugh was not unaware of this likelihood, and he began conspiring against Rudolf as pretty much as soon as he passed go. Here, some people say things get confusing here. I, I don't know. Try to keep up. Hugh conspired with a number of nobles with an interest in Burgundy. In current, the current head of the Welf family, whose name was Rudolf, but who was a different Rudolf than the other Rudolf. Okay? This Rudolf owned land in Burgundy, but at this point was the king of France. Okay? At any rate, Hugh gave these folks, including the King of France, lands and titles in return for attempting to split off a chunk of Burgundy, and the resulting conflict kept Rudolf II of Burgundy busy for a while. But, you know, two could play at this game, and a huge chunk of Provence was ultimately split off by a possibly illegitimate son of Louis the Blind that Hugh had sidelined when he took power. Of course, this splitting off a chunk of Provence was at the behest of Rudolf II, Ultimately, Hugh would just up and give Provence to Rudolf in return for Rudolf relinquishing his claims to Italy. And so, at its maximum extent, this kingdom of Burgundy included a long strip of territory along the western side of the Alps, but did not include all of the original territory of Burgundy under Charlemagne, because a big chunk of that had gone to France. Okay? This deal was cemented in 933 when Hugh's son Lothair married Rudolf's daughter, Adelaide, who was thus the wife and daughter of emperors. Watch the space. Just to bring the story to a nice conclusion that we can touch on later, this entire territory of the Kingdom of Burgundy was ultimately brought into the Holy Roman Empire as an autonomous kingdom in 1006. We may have mentioned that before. Uh, which meant that the Holy Roman Empire would have a claim to all this territory down the road, including Provence, with the exception of that bit that was being ruled by the Welfs and which had joined France and was also being called Burgundy and was also being ruled by a guy named Rudolf. Easy, right? I don't see the problem, personally. Back to Italy. Hugh tried to use a now-familiar set of policies to secure his rule. He put his family members in key posts, handed out land left and right to his friends, and engaged in marriage politics. In the end, Hugh was about as successful as Berengar had been ruling Italy for 24 years as set against Berengar's 26-ish-odd years, with those numbers in both cases containing numerous periods of unrest and revolt. 
Like Berengar, Hugh's biggest foreign policy problem was to be the Magyar raiders. Luckily for Hugh, the Magyar efforts were now split between the areas north and south of the Alps, as the weakening of the eastern Frankish kingdom meant that Germany was a rich raiding ground, so it's not like Hugh had to deal with the Magyars every year. Hugh very much made use of this, occasionally allying with the Magyar armies and pointing them toward such of his Bavarian neighbors as he found threatening. Sometimes, however, the Hungarians did come to Italy. On these occasions, Hugh used a variety of tactics, of which battlefield confrontations were very rarely the prime choice. Instead, Hugh would gather his army and meet the Magyar army, but would also bring huge bribes and negotiate rather than fight. The results of these negotiations fell into three major categories. First, Hugh might bribe them to leave. This was probably the most expensive option, and it was rarely achieved, maybe once or twice. The second option was that Hugh hired them outright to help with internal or external threats he may have faced. It seems likely that he gave them enough cash and supplies to potentially avoid plundering of his own countryside, but I sort of doubt it was a completely effective gambit. We should not think of this as anything so formal as hiring the Magyars as mercenaries to be part of his army per se. They are more like contractors. Something along the lines of, Oh, hey guys, uh, while you're here, I was just going to beat up the Pope. Want to come plunder Rome? This seems to have been the most common option. This does shade into the third option for dealing with the Magyars. In a number of cases, Hugh seems to just show up with a big chest of money and supplies and suggest a different destination for the army other than Italy. We talked a bit about Germany, but, but often the Magyars really, really wanted to go through Italy on their way. Sometimes Hugh would point them to France, sometimes Hugh would point them to southern Italy. But the most spectacular raid... The Magyars had originally planned on raiding northern Italy, but then Hugh showed up and suggested that they attack the Caliphate of Cordoba instead in Spain. Hugh provided them guides, and so the Magyars crossed the Po Valley, crossed the Alps, crossed southern France, crossed the Pyrenees, and then began attacking anything that moved in Spain. The Magyars never attacked the city of Cordoba itself, but apparently the Islamic chroniclers of the city were rather sure that they would have succeeded in taking it. Nonetheless, they did apparently take three other cities, and only turned back when they ran into a desert territory where they ran out of food and water. At that point, they killed their Italian guide or guides, and headed home. Other similar raids were conducted into southern Italy and France, as I've said, and occasionally, despite the redirection, the Magyars would end up raiding Italy anyway, regardless on their way home. So not the best situation. I'm not going to go into further detail on the Magyar raids into Italy at this time. We should just be aware that all through the following narrative, the Magyars were a constant menace, and the resulting social dislocations continued apace. The resulting in Castlementum of Italy would eventually make such raiding harder and harder to justify, but it was a very long process. And in the meantime, no one was able to really resolve the problem, although I should say Hugh did a pretty decent job. Not perfect, but... There were several occasions where the Italians fought against the Magyars, and when small Magyar forces were cornered by large Italian ones, there were even some successes. But this would be a rarity for the rest of the Middle Ages. With that backdrop, it's probably remarkable that Hugh had as stable a reign as he did. This is not to say that it was particularly stable, it's just that Hugh did a pretty remarkable job of insulating his political security from the security of the realm. He seems to have achieved this through a mixture of the usual political patronage, tied to an extensive and sometimes brutal paranoia. You see, like Berengar, Hugh made use of lands and titles to cement ties to powerful people. I'm including his marriage of Marozia in this category, since marriage was pretty clearly a political tool for the upper classes at this time, no matter the opinions of the clerics. Unlike Berengar, however, Hugh brought a stick to the game in addition to a carrot. While Berengar simply handed out benefits to his friends, Hugh would use his power to remove people from office who he felt threatened by. And there were a lot of people that he felt threatened by. This is actually something of a key return to Carolingian form, and would seem to indicate that in Hugh, Italy had found someone with the power to re-centralize Italy into a new, more coherent feudal kingdom. As with Berengar, Hugh was a century or so ahead of other European monarchs in this regard, and was remarkably successful in his efforts. Successful at least in the sense that he was able to actually remove people from office, something that later kings would struggle to achieve. With these policies, one is tempted to wonder if Hugh was attempting to avoid repeating the mistakes of Berengar in just being over-liberal with his land. 
as we will see, there was probably an element of that going on. Unfortunately for Hugh, and as is so often the case, in avoiding the mistakes of the past, Hugh managed to make new and exciting mistakes that would bring him down in the end. The trouble started for Hugh with his marriage to Morosia. Hugh clearly wanted to marry Morosia because he just loved her so much. No, actually it was her firm grip on Rome, something that was cemented by her son's rule in Spoleto. There were two problems. First, Hugh was already married. He fixed this by having his marriage annulled. The second problem was that Marozia's second husband, Guy, was actually Hugh's half-brother. Their mother, Bertha, was another interesting lady who I just don't have time to discuss, sorry about that. But at any rate, to resolve this problem, Hugh had his mother's second marriage to Adelbert the Rich of Tuscany declared null as well, and thus making all the descendants of Adelbert illegitimate. This allowed Hugh to remove Guy's successor in Tuscany, Lambert, from office, and replace him with Boso. To make this fun, and just so you're clear, Lambert was Guy's brother, and Boso was Hugh's brother. So Hugh removed his half-brother from office and replaced him with his full brother so that he could marry his own half-brother's widow. Ew. To make this even better, Hugh did not get on with his wife's son, Albrecht. Now, step-parents having difficult relationships with stepchildren is not too hard to imagine, but Hugh apparently slapped Elbrick during the wedding festivities. We of course have to question the truth of the story given our sources. This seems like it was probably a poor decision, given that half the point of this marriage was Elbrick's control over Spoleto. We of course have to question the truth of this story given our sources, but between the familial strain and whatever slight that might have occurred, Elbrick did not like Hugh. Hugh's dispossession of Lambert might also have made Elbrick nervous. Whatever the cause, this sort of undermined the point of the entire marriage. Because this wasn't just Elbrick, Morosia's awkward kid, this was Elbrick II, Duke of Spoleto, and commander of a large, morally ambiguous army, which was now spiced up with quite a few Magyar mercenaries, and just to put some creme fraiche on this particular political goulash, the political ties between the Roman aristocracy and the Spoletan aristocracy seem to have been very much alive and well. So when Albrecht decided he wasn't too keen on his mom's new dude, it wasn't just going to be awkward moments at family gatherings. No, it would be the other thing. During the very wedding festivities, Albrecht's agents caused a riot in Rome. Hugh, the perennial gentleman that he was, legged it and left his new bride to face her ticked-off son. To be fair, she did okay. There are no rumors of assassination or mistreatment. Morosia lived out the rest of her days under the custody of her son, so she was in prison, and he now effectively ruled Rome, but otherwise we have no reason to suspect that she was ill-treatment. I mean, she lived in a palace. The break between Hugh and Albrecht II created a split in the Kingdom of Italy, the likes of which had not occurred since the days of Louis the Pious. Although Albrecht would eventually be talked around to mending fences with Hugh, from 933 onwards, northern Italy, itself a rump of the Roman territory of old, was itself now split, with the Papal States and Spoleto firmly outside of royal control. This was very much a harbinger of things to come, but in the short term, Hugh may have felt himself to have gotten off somewhat unscathed. Though he had definitively lost Rome, Spoleto had never really been under his command, and it was not aggressively expansionistic either. Both power blocks were too involved in their own internal and external consolidations to attempt the reconquest of the other side. Ultimately, Albrecht married one of Hugh's daughters, and one of the sons produced by that union would be the infamous John XII, but we are getting ahead of ourselves. For Hugh, the break with Spoleto was just another reason to try fervently to consolidate power and rebuild central government. In between, you know, dodging Magyar raids. In a manner that again foreshadowed things to come in wider European society, Hugh did this by carefully waiting for opportune moments to arrest, assassinate, or dispossess people who were or could potentially be threats to his power. The example of Lambert of Tuscany serves well here, even if it's a bit out of place. Sure, Lambert was officially removed because of some weird thing involving Hugh's marriage to Morosia, his stepsister-in-law, but it's just as likely that Hugh was trying to head off a threat. Lambert's father, Adelbert the Rich, had been material in ousting the previous two emperors of Italy. Even though Adelbert, and probably Lambert, had supported Hugh, that was just a really serious threat to security. These guys have a loyalty problem. So when Hugh saw the chance, he ousted Lambert and replaced him with someone more trustworthy. 
Hugh did similar things for years, and more and more land was concentrated in the hands of Hugh and a small group of trusted associates. Hugh was on track to reassemble a real government for Italy, albeit over the fallen bodies of a number of his supposed friends. But this kind of thing has a tendency to cause a reaction. If you were an Italian landowner, maybe even a supporter of Hugh, but who was not an immediate family member, you had to be somewhat alarmed at the situation. Ultimately, things came to a head in 941 when Hugh tried to arrest Berengar of Evray. Berengar has an interesting lineage. His grandfather was one of the Burgundian mercenaries who had followed Emperor Guy of Spoleto into Italy after the death of Charles the Fat. His father married a daughter of Berengar I, and Berengar II was the product of that marriage. There was probably never any thought of Berengar of Evray succeeding to his grandfather's throne, but there was a family policy on his father's side to always side with winners. So when it became pretty clear that all the neighbors were backing Rudolf, Berengar of Evray switched his loyalty away from his namesake and backed Rudolf. When Hugh showed up, well, man, I never liked Rudolf anyway. And thus, when Berengar was exiled, he was seen as 1. a pretty decent guy who played well with others, and b. completely innocent of any real wrongdoing. I mean, here was a guy who just kept his head down and did his thing. We are told by Liutprand that Berengar was slated to be assassinated, but that Hugh's son Lothair tipped him off in shame at his father's deed. Berengar legged it to Germany, where he found quite a number of other exiled Italian nobles. Berengar found that he had the best claim to the throne of anyone in the room, and ended up leading an invasion of Italy. Hugh's rule had at this point gotten somewhat scary for the Italian nobility, and so a lot of people showed up to help Berengar, and not so many people showed up to help Hugh. Hugh fled into exile while his son and co-emperor, the same Lothair who had tipped Berengar off of the assassination, was captured. After a year or two in captivity, Lothair the last living legitimate holder of the title of emperor, suffered some sort of unfortunate assassination-related accident and died, leaving his wife, Adelaide, in the care of Berengar and Berengar's son. All in all, a nice way to say thanks for that tip-off about the murder plot. Anyway, in the meantime, Berengar was crowned as Berengar II, King of Italy. Note the title, King. Berengar II's rule has all the hallmarks of a classic tragedy. A well-regarded and popular guy, Berengar had power thrust upon him. Contrary to expectations, however, Berengar was unable to make use of his new power, and the struggle to hold on to his position rapidly unraveled into a series of increasingly desperate measures that ultimately ended in disaster. A disaster brought about by a woman. But, unfortunately, that's going to be a story for another time. We've already run pretty long, so I'm just going to try to wrap it up here, and we're going to leave the rest of the story of Berengar for a couple of episodes down the line. But before we get to that, uh, let's review what we discussed today. Today we discussed the place of women in early medieval historiography, notably how the chroniclers hated them, modern historians ignored them, and postmodern historians can't decide if they are awesome or super awesome. Personally, I think awesome. Then we discussed the life and times of Theodora, her husband Theophylact, their daughter Marozia, and the various popes that they slept with, didn't sleep with, or bore. Sadly, this episode will not pass the Bechdel test. Marozia married three times, the first to Gadeshicide Alberic, and then to Gadeshi grandson Guy of Tuscany, and then finally to Emperor Hugh, although it seems unlikely that Hugh ever got the pleasure of that wedding due to the events of the wedding night. Marozia's son, Albrecht II, made the whole thing really awkward by having a mob storm the reception and throw Marozia in prison while Hugh bravely ran out the back. We ended the day by discussing Hugh, his ongoing feuding with Rudolf of Burgundy and his son's marriage to Adelaide. Then we discussed the political fallout from the wedding, Hugh's increasing paranoia, and his eventual overthrow by Berengar II. Given that this episode has already gone on too long, the story of Berengar is going to have to wait for next time. Actually, it will probably have to wait for several episodes. Next time, I'm going to catch us up on events in Central Europe. Then I'm going to discuss the reigns of Henry the Fowler and Otto I. And then I'm finally going to loop back to Italy and conclude this series on the Middle Ages by discussing the reign of Otto I, Berengar II, and the invasion of Italy. You may have thought this episode exciting, but you have not seen nothing yet because you have not yet seen the Saxons beating off the Magyars. You may have thought this episode was scandalous, but are you prepared for the Caligula of the Papacy?
given this show's clean rating, I suspect you are. So tune in for the next several episodes, which are all going to be very special episodes of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Senatrix Mariosa. Stop, stop, stop. You're saying it wrong. Well, will you say it if you're so clever? It's Senatrix Mariosa. Senatrix Mariosa? No, Senatrix Mariosa. Senatrix Mariosa? catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.